Chapter 2. Where Am I? The opening quote for this chapter is from Buddha. All that we are is the result of what we have thought. The mind is everything. What we think, we become. When I get home, I walk into the kitchen and say hello to my mom. Not wanting to bring attention to the details of my day, I engage her in small talk and ask what's for dinner. I then go to my room to think, not just about the bus ride or the incident with coach, but about whether I should share my experience on the bus with anyone. Lying there on my bed in the growing twilight, I imagine how I might talk about this with my brothers, friends, or parents, but none of the scenarios in my mind seem to go well. It's as if I'm unable to find a way to describe what happened, which was odd because I was pretty good at expressing myself. Looking back, I now understand that my difficulty resulted from a hidden belief that affected my way of relating to the world, which always left me feeling as though there was something that I was overlooking. But what was it? Was it something I'd read or been told? Was it something I was supposed to remember? I just couldn't put my finger on it. All I knew was that not knowing left me feeling uneasy. Years later, I would remember that the sense of something missing first appeared in my interactions with my stepfather, a man who stressed the importance of logic at the expense of feeling. But much more time would need to pass before I understood that his strength of logic provided him with a sense of power, which was fueled by his need to be right. With this as his motivation, he would dismantle others' views on philosophy or religion as if proving they lacked merit allowed him to take refuge in the belief that he was correct. Faith, likewise, was irrational and pointless because it couldn't be logically proven. Despite his bias, he never stopped searching through books, religious organizations, and spiritual groups for teachings that could resist his attacks of logic. Along the way, my brothers and I were exposed to several Christian churches, authors of existentialism like Tillich, Camus, Sartre, and Kafka, the writings of Alan Watts, Ernest Holmes, and Catherine Ponder, and the science of mind, theosophy, the Creative Initiative Foundation, and the Quaker Society of Friends. Of all of these, it was only the Quaker Society of Friends that held my interest due to their practice of nonviolence and that there was no preaching. Instead, it was replaced by something called centering down and then sitting in the silence, two constants that I already valued. But regardless of where he looked, it remained clear that logic, even if fueled by anger, was his way to feel safe in the world. It was because of his conviction that being right meant being safe that he demanded my expressions be rendered into logical statements of thought as well. In fact, he would routinely tell me that he didn't care what I felt, but only wanted to know what I thought. And since emotions are self-validating and do not lend themselves to considerations of being right or wrong, they were discouraged, especially the angry ones. Instead, I learned to suppress what I was feeling to such an extent that over time, I became skillful in describing feelings without actually having to engage them. In this way, I was made to thread everything I felt into a tapestry of thought that he could logically unravel to his heart's content. As a result, I was never right, and therefore I never felt safe. This doesn't mean my life was absent emotion. I still felt anger, sadness, excitement, joy, guilt, and fear. But in becoming adept at suppressing or ignoring them, I forgot how to relate to my emotions for what they were in the first place. In this way, my stepfather unwittingly played a large part in disabling a process that was critical to my relationship with the world. Now, as a teenager, 
It had become so ingrained in me that it operated invisibly and always caused me to feel unsafe and unable to trust what I felt without remembering why. But despite his attempts to dismiss my feelings, somehow they still found a way to guide me through life. For no matter how hard I tried to deny, hide, or discredit what I was feeling, doing so only made them grow stronger. Evidently, there was no getting away from them. It was due to this conditioning and the fact that the moment on the bus was devoid of any logical components that I was unable to deconstruct it. It had no logical sequence to it, no beginning, middle, or end. It arrived in an instant, self-sufficient and complete, imbued with a truth that could not be refuted. So, what was I supposed to do now? I decided to take the chance and talk about it. Very quickly, I found that not one person was able to understand what I was talking about. Instead, each took whatever piece of the vision they could glimpse as their point of departure to express an already established belief they held about themselves, the world in general, or me in particular. So even though each brought to the discussion whatever degree of sincerity they could muster, I could tell they had no idea what I was talking about. It was from this first attempt to share my experience that it became painfully clear how alone I really was, but in a manner far more troubling than what I normally associated with being a teenager. After all, what was I supposed to do with this experience if I couldn't even talk about it? It all seemed so unfair. Eventually, I discovered there was nothing I was going to do with it, because its purpose had been to do something with me. It shifted my consciousness from its usual point of view to include a view of point, which perceived the world in an entirely different way. Before my bus ride to school that morning, I possessed the perspective of my interior looking out to the world and now had the wholeness of life looking back into me. Suddenly, I had simultaneous access to both an interior and exterior perspective. While this provided me with two unique ways of seeing the world, I quickly discovered that they were constantly at odds with each other. It was in this state of bilateral conflict that I sought answers to the questions that now flooded my mind. What happened? How did it happen? How can I know something that I have never thought about before? Why was silence, peace, and timelessness the precursor of the experience? Why did I feel so safe and peaceful there in that moment and so troubled afterwards? How is it possible that such an insight could so radically transform my life? And where was I now, anyway?